Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sweetwater Christian Church. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here. If it's your first time with us, I want to welcome you. I don't know what you are doing now. Last week, Astros were doing really well, and I said, don't change anything up. Now maybe let's change some things up, okay? I'm not freaking out yet, but uh, some routines need to be adjusted. Pray a little bit harder. We'll see what we need to do for these strokes to, uh, to pull it out for us. Uh, last weekend, I was officiating a wedding in Galveston, and it was, I, I got hooked up with this, this couple. Uh, I didn't know them previously, and uh, every now and then when this happens, I, I find myself in a very interesting situation where as a wedding officiant, if you don't know friends and family, particularly if it's out of town, sometimes they'll invite you to kind of real personal um, kind of events. So, so Lindsay and I were invited to the uh, rehearsal and obviously in the rehearsal dinner. And so afterwards, we're there with 20 of their closest family and friends And for a person with social anxiety, I don't know how I find myself in these situations. Just constantly looking around like I know none of these people. We've got like at least two and a half, three hours here. I don't know what I'm going to do. Lindsay, please talk. Make friends. And I'm going to hide in the corner. And uh, sure enough, so I'm sitting down at the table and and some people kind of come over and sit next to us. And we get to talking and find out that the the woman, she works at a church in the area. And so um, we obviously have something in common. And so we're, we're talking about churches and she is asking about our church and is asking about what our church is like and the kind of people that come to the church. And, and at one point I, I said, our, our church seems to be a place for people who have doubts. Our church is like a, it's like a home for doubters. And it struck her as odd. You could kind of see it in her face and her eyes. It's like, what is that? Can you expand on that? What does that mean, a church for people who doubt? Like, it seemed like kind of an oxymoron to her, right? It's, is it a church or a doubter's club? Like, which one is it? Are you, do you have faith or do you not have faith? What's, what's going on? And I said, no, it's, I mean, it, what we, we've tried to do and what, what we've seen God do in beautiful ways is, is create a community where, where people who don't have all the answers can find a place where space is held for them to wrestle. Can find a place where space is held for them to experience and explore and grow and mature in their faith. And I want to explore that idea with you more this morning. What if it is the case that the church is meant to be a, a home for those who have doubts, a home for the doubters? If you have a Bible, open up with me to John chapter 20. John 20 is where we'll be this morning. I want to share with you a story that we find in the Gospel of John, our our fourth Gospel in the Scriptures. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardback underneath a seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and flip it open with us. We'll be on page 907 in those Bibles, the Gospel of John. I have been spending a lot of time in John's Gospel this year, just personally. And anytime we, we have a week here at the church where we're out of a sermon series, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but I've, I've gone to the end of the Gospel of John and, and looked at some different stories and characters that I've never really quite explored or at least explored publicly before. And I want to do that again this morning with what I think is just a beautiful narrative um, of, of Jesus after his resurrection and an apostle named Thomas. I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas. Somebody's called Doubting Thomas. We have a painting up on the screen of of Thomas here, a recreation of the scene that we'll read here in John chapter 20. 
We'll pick it up in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, interesting nickname, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The story of Thomas stands out to a lot of Christians. And I think one of the reasons is because so many of us can see ourselves in Thomas. So many of us can see ourselves with the questions that we have, with maybe the doubts that we have in the apostle here in this story. Doubting Thomas, unbelieving Thomas. Thomas is the last holdout. This is the end of what most scholars think was originally the Gospel of John. And so they think chapter 21 is an epilogue. It was put to kind of wrap things up a little bit neater. But they, they think this was really meant to be the climax originally. And, and you can kind of tell by Thomas's confession here. He ends by, by saying, after meeting the resurrected Jesus, my Lord and my God, and it circles all the way back to the beginning of John's Gospel. If you're familiar with John's Gospel, it starts by telling us, just as a narrator, who Jesus is. Jesus is the word of God, and the word of God, we're told, is God. But now, 20 chapters later, no one has ever explicitly said Jesus is God. But right at the end here, we reach a climax. The whole story is wrapped up with a resurrected man showing up to a follower who's not convinced, and receiving this acclamation, receiving this confession, my Lord and my God. From the last holdout to the faithful believer. Thomas, uh, tradition has it, goes from being this skeptical person to being one of the disciples that perhaps goes the farthest for Christ. So, so tradition tells us that Thomas goes to India, to spread the gospel. He arrives there around 50 AD. Tradition tells us he's martyred around 72 AD. There were already established routes from Judea and Galilee, Palestine to India back in the, the first century. And so perhaps he, he hops on one of these routes or takes a ship there. He goes there to spread the gospel. Um, and there is actual evidence that, that this perhaps happened dating way back into the first couple of centuries. In fact, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, there's actually a Christian denomination called the Thomas Christians in India. And it is arguably the oldest Christian denomination. Thomas is just such an interesting character. I mean, he goes from saying, I will never believe, to perhaps 
giving up his life, paying the ultimate price to spread the message of who Jesus is. In this chapter, the, the context of the story that we, we just read, Jesus has resurrected and he has revealed himself to some of his disciples. He comes to Mary on Easter morning in the garden of the empty tomb. And then that evening, the disciples are gathered. The first Easter, the first Easter service, the first time Jesus' people are together on Easter, and, and Jesus comes and reveals himself to them. John 20 is all about Jesus revealing himself to his disciples in various ways. But Thomas isn't there. So, so on this first Easter evening, you only have 10 disciples in the upper room, 10 of the original 12. You remember Judas, who had betrayed Jesus? He's no longer in the picture. And then Thomas is not there. And we're not told why Thomas is not there, but maybe now we know why Thomas is not there, because Thomas is not on board. I mean, we don't know. Where was Thomas? What was he doing? But he's not, he's not there with the disciples, and so he misses out. And they were told eight days later. Now, this is a Jewish expression that really means a week later. I know that's confusing and that sounds like scholar speak. And uh, you just got to kind of trust me on this. The Jewish people counted the present day as day one. And so this was just a way of saying a kind of Jewish idiom a week later. So this is another Sunday evening, another Sunday gathering. This is, catch this, the second Easter ever. This is the second anniversary of the day that Jesus rose from the dead and now Thomas is there. And the other disciples are bearing witness to their experience. Jesus has revealed himself to us. And Thomas's reaction is, prove it. I've got questions. I need proof. I want to touch. I want to see. I want to feel. Thomas is the first empiricist. It's the first person to say, if I can't see it and feel it and touch it and measure it, why should I believe it? It was a philosophy that was ahead of its time. And the Enlightenment, modernity, you and I are sons and, and daughters of scientific revolution. We live in a world where, where this is often our default way of approaching knowledge and understanding. What's the measurement? What can we know? Now, there's debate over what Thomas is actually getting at here. Whether Thomas is a miracle seeker, is he a sign seeker? Or is Thomas just trying to say, I've not yet been convinced, I haven't had this experience? I think there's reason to suggest it's the second one. When Thomas says, I want to, or I won't believe, right, unless I feel and put my finger in, I'm not sure he is being Super literal here. Like, I don't think Thomas necessarily is laying out his conditions for belief. Like, once these four things are met, then I will believe. Here's the contract I laid out. If you could take this to Jesus and have him come by, we'll see if we can work this out. I think Thomas might be just trying to, to let them know, like, what you're saying is ridiculous. Does this make sense? Like, okay, well, you're telling me that the guy I saw who was crucified is now alive, and you've all been talking to him and hanging out with him, and that's great. But if you remember, he has this big hole in his side. There were nails through his hands. So when I hang out with him and I see the nails and the holes and I can feel that, then I will believe. And when Jesus shows up, he immediately addresses Thomas. He knows the, the questions, the loose ends Thomas has. 
And again, in the narrative, perhaps Thomas does go in there and touch and feel around as the paintings throughout history show. But, but as I read the narrative, it almost seems like Thomas, his confession comes kind of spontaneously and quickly. He's just overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus. Jesus says, hey, I heard you, put it in, you want to feel it. And perhaps Thomas doesn't even get that far. He says, my Lord and my God, Jesus in front of me. I think Thomas's issue was not so much that he was a sign seeker. We know that people who seek signs and miracles can often receive a sign or a miracle and still not yet believe, right? I mean, Jesus says this in the Gospel of John. If you, if you, if you, really, if you really don't want to or, or don't have a framework to believe a certain truth or, 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 or confession— then really, no matter what evidence is put in front of you, right? If you, if you start with the conclusion that dead people can't raise again, then you'll come up with another explanation for whatever evidence is put in front of you, right? It's like the guy who went to his psychologist and he was convinced that he was no longer living and the psychologist was like, okay, I'm going to have to convince you that you're living. And he was like, hey, do, do, do dead people bleed? And the guy was like, obviously not. I'm not stupid. And so he took out a little knife and cut him real quick, and he was bleeding. He goes, ha-ha, so you must be alive. And instead the guy goes, oh, no, I was wrong. Dead people do bleed. <laughs> right? I mean, he had, his, he had his framework of how the world works. And no matter what evidence you put in front, he was just going to, I must be imagining something. Whatever y'all were had in your food or drink last week now is, is here with me. I'm not so sure Thomas had laid out a condition, here are the signs that will be acceptable for me, as much as he was saying, I, I'm not able to yet rely on your witness to your experience. You've met the resurrected Christ. I haven't yet. And yet on this second Sunday, Jesus shows up, reveals himself to Thomas. What a beautiful story. So many of us, if we're being honest, just as human beings, even as Christians, have a lot of questions. Have all loose ends in our lives, in our thoughts, in our beliefs. And there are a lot of beautiful things, I think, that the narrative, the story, the person of Thomas can teach us. Two this morning I want to um, explore with you. The first is this. I think that Thomas can show us that doubt is not always a disaster. Doubt does not have to be a disaster. Now, there are certain strands of, of Christianity and, and certain teachers who would suggest that doubt is like the complete opposite of faith. So you either have faith or you are doubting, but you can't have one or the other. I would suggest that that's maybe a short-sighted view of things. Perhaps the opposite of doubt is certainty. Not necessarily just faith in it of itself. There have been lots of people who have suggested that doubt is a, almost a, a prerequisite for having faith. I mean, if you're not able to have those questions and have those explorations, how then will you put forth that faith? And there are people who, because they have been told or assumed or picked up on this idea that if I have doubts, if I don't have everything pieced together in my mind or in my heart, that I don't belong. Something's wrong with me. I'm not on the team, I guess. And they feel like there's not a place for them at Jesus' table. There's not a place for them in the church community. 
But I think Thomas shows us those who have doubts, those who are serious skeptics, actually do have a place. They actually are on the same journey towards maturing in their faith and becoming exactly what God has set them out to be. Perhaps not even in spite of their doubts, but because of their doubts, because of the loosens and the messiness that they have. There are some people who are convinced that they know everything. Don't look at your spouse. That's not a very holy thing on Sunday morning. And there are plenty of public teachers or preachers who would like to make you believe that they do know, in fact, everything. Well, in my great and unmatched wisdom, it's very interesting. And so in, in Thomas's confession, he says, my Lord and my God. If you look at the cultural context to the Gospel of John, what we, what we know is that there's an, an emperor in the late first century called Domitian. I don't know if you've heard of Domitian. Um, he was a particularly mean-spirited emperor toward the early Christians. And what we know is that he, we have this in, 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 in artifacts, we know he required the subjects of Rome, when they were addressing him verbally or in writing, to address him as our Lord and God. Which is interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with this kind of like leadership perspective. Like if you have to tell someone you're in charge, you're not in charge. <laughs> like if you have to if you have to say, I'm the Lord and God, maybe you're not the Lord and God. Jesus gets this kind of more spontaneous, worshipful response just from his his presence. But whether Thomas is thinking about it or John is thinking about it as he's writing it, it's likely that the Christians who are first reading this text in the late first century, that they understand what Thomas is saying about Jesus is in direct contradiction to what the king would have you think about him. And that allegiance to Jesus is always higher than whatever political king, leader, cultural hero might be demanding allegiance. Faithfulness to Jesus always comes first. Thomas as he's presented to us as this skeptical person, it's pretty in character for him. So we don't know much about Thomas from just the Gospels. We know he's a disciple. We know apparently he was a twin. At least his nickname is the twin. It would be a weird nickname if he wasn't a twin, but we don't know much about his twin. The twin. We know that he was kind of the sober-minded guy. Thomas is the guy you're not running conspiracy theories up against. Thomas is a guy who's got questions and wants to look at research with you and talk about facts and data. We only see him really interact with the narrative a couple times. In chapter 11 of of the Gospel of John, Jesus is um, going to the funeral of his buddy Lazarus. And Thomas says, let's follow him and we're going to go there and we're going to die there. Now that's not what happened. And so Thomas doesn't quite have things figured out at this point, right? But you can get from this passage that he's committed. He's a genuine follower, although he's still got a lot of details to work out. He's, he really wasn't clicking with the message Jesus was getting at there, with what they were going to do there. Just knew it was a dangerous situation in time. Like, well, I guess we'll go, and this is what's going to happen to us. And then in chapter 14, Thomas starts another conversation with questions that he's not sure about. Jesus is talking about, I've, I've made a way for you to the Father's house. And Thomas goes, well, how, how do we know what the way is? How do we know the way? I don't know the way. Do you have a map? What, what's, what's the directions? What are the, what, what's the way here? You're talking about a way, and I don't have any kind of steps to go. And Jesus goes, I'm the way. 
Now, I've got to think to Thomas, maybe he's like, I don't know, that helps me too much. A little more metaphorical for my taste. If you remember Philip, after this goes, if you just show us the Father, we'd be good. We just see the Father, and Jesus says, what? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is Thomas. He shows up, and we're not perhaps surprised by the fact that he's the holdout. He's skeptical. He's got questions. And yet Jesus reveals himself to Thomas. He responds with perhaps the highest, most beautiful affirmation that you get in the Gospels. It would take Christians a few hundred years to work out exactly the words they needed to talk about what they believed about Jesus' identity in terms of him being God. They have councils, the early Christians do, and they come out with this exact language. Here's what we believe. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, both at the same time. And they're united. There's two natures, but they're not confused when they're united. They've got to really think hard about this, but perhaps the whole conversation is started here with Thomas. When he sees the one who has been crucified but is now risen, and he says, my Lord and, and my God. Doubt maybe has a, a place in the life of a believer. Doubt maybe isn't always a disaster. Sometimes doubt might be the thing that keeps you moving and pushing. As one author says, it, it can be kind of the ants in the pants of faith. Doubt can be the thing that makes you keep leaning, keep asking, keep growing. We have a lot of educators in our congregation. And you know that it's a scary thing when you get to a place where you've stopped learning. You think you've got everything down. As uncomfortable as it is to know what you don't know, it's an equally uncomfortable, if not more so dangerous position to, to now think you've got it all handled. Perhaps it's okay to have questions, loose ends, things to wrestle with. Perhaps it doesn't get in the way of one's maturity in Christ as much as it can be an integral part of that same story. That doesn't have to be a disaster. The second thing, though, that, that I see in this story and want to tease out with you this morning is that maybe doubt has a home. And maybe that home is perhaps surprising. Maybe that, maybe that home is the church, the community of believers, Jesus' disciples, his people. Maybe that's the home for the doubters. Maybe that's where doubt was meant to be. Maybe that's where doubt most perfectly fits, is, is best experienced and wrestled with and grown through. So, so John, I don't think, is accidentally repeating himself about when the disciples are getting together and what's happening when they get together. On the first Sunday, the disciples are gathered together and the risen Christ reveals himself to them. Thomas, not there. Doesn't believe. And Jesus, in addressing Thomas's doubts and unbeliefs, he doesn't show up to Thomas's prayer closet on Monday. And he doesn't meet him in the market on Thursday night. Jesus shows up again, reveals himself when his people are gathered. 
on a Sunday. This repetition, I think, is John trying to say, wink. Maybe there's something about the people of God gathering where Jesus habitually comes and reveals himself through his Holy Spirit. This is a truth that gets fleshed out over and over again throughout the rest of the New Testament. Jesus himself hints at this. When two or three are gathered together, I'll be there. Paul, in in the letter to the Corinthians, says that the community of believers, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where God's presence and power is. If you want to go experience God, you, you go experience this community. And this is not to say that Jesus doesn't or can't reveal himself in other ways. But I, I do think, in my own experience, there is something uniquely special and transformative about the way that Jesus consistently reveals himself in the context of normal, everyday gatherings of his people. And maybe that's where doubt should be. Maybe if we, if we say those who are doubting, who have doubts, they don't belong here, Maybe we're cutting them off from the source of what might alleviate those doubts. The experience of a risen Christ that might get them to the place they need to go, to be. I don't know if you uh, are familiar with Mount Everest, um, the people who climb up Mount Everest. Uh, There is apparently a lot of people that do this. Um, It's a kind of cottage little industry. Uh, I don't know if you saw this in the news recently, but as more and more people have been doing this, um, it's actually gotten kind of dangerous to do it at certain times because there can get like backups on the mountain. And if you're behind someone who's taking longer to get down, you might be stuck in a certain place and not be prepared to be up there for so long. Or your body might not be able to be up in one specific spot and altitude for so long. And, and people have gotten in trouble recently by, by doing this. When you go climb Mount Everest, um, usually you're guided by a local, a Sherpa. This is one of the issues. People go over there and pay a lot of money and, and perhaps putting some of these local people in danger um, because it's not planned out quite as well and, and people aren't prepared for the, the trek quite as well. Um, but, but the key is, and this is a kind of a mantra in the climbing community, you don't want to like go solo on some of these things. Like You don't want to be unhooked to someone with wisdom and advice who knows the terrain. That's not the right way to make that journey. You want to go with someone who's been there before, who knows what it's like, who they themselves have done it before with someone before them who's been there and knows what it's like. This is, I think, often what happens when a church or community of Christians is functioning healthy, in a healthy way. Is, is you have your questions and your doubts. I don't, I don't know if I can believe that right now. I don't know how that works. I don't know about this passage of scripture. I don't, I don't know about this idea. And it's the church where you find a resource of people who have said like, yeah, I have that question too. I've had that question. Here's what helped me. Here are some, some resources, some books, some ideas, some scripture that has helped me. It's a community actually where you are able to best work these things out not outside of it. I think it is the case, actually, if I'm just going to lay all my cards on the table, that individual believers are not equipped to handle their doubt by themselves. It's a dead end. It's climbing up Mount Everest by yourself. I'm not sure how you're planning on getting up, and I'm definitely not sure how you're planning on getting down. You're going to get stuck. 
And that's not because there's something wrong with you. That's just the way it works. A church community that's, that's functioning, I think, in a Thomas Christian kind of way can hold that space. And the key here is, is you're not just replacing it with a different kind of fundamentalism, right? Like you have this question, well, here's the answer. Now you can agree or leave. And you have to be patient. You allow people to explore and question and, and, and even be okay if they come to a perhaps different conclusion than you came to. Why? Because perhaps this is how Jesus is revealing himself to them. Perhaps this is how their faith is being matured. Perhaps this is how they'll come to believe and have faith in the one who is the Christ, the Son of God. And, and in that belief, they might find this life that he has come to give, the life in his name. There was a, a friend of mine, she's a youth pastor, and she was telling me about a, a, a night of, of uh, youth service where she set up a whiteboard and with her, her kids had drawn out some questions and wanted them to come up and, and write out the answers to the whiteboard and they were going to discuss it. And the questions were things they were not prepared for. It was, what do you think we believe that you don't believe or can't agree with? What things have you heard or that we've taught that you have questions about, that you have serious questions about? And it was one of those, like, this is a trick question, right? I mean, we're no one's supposed to get up and answer this. Nothing? We're on board with everything? She's like, no, guys, you're not in trouble. No one's, like, it's not a trap. We're not trying to catch anybody here. This is just anyone who's ever been anywhere where there's teaching and reading, right, has questions. And it's like, well, yeah, I heard that, but I'm not sure I'm on board with that yet. The healthy thing to do is to talk about it, to learn together, to grow together, to explore together. This is, I think, the, the trajectory Thomas and his road, his journey from skepticism to faith might suggest is the, the way forward for you and I as Jesus' people, as the church. Not be afraid of our doubts and our questions, the things we wrestle with, but to put it on the table. To do it together. To be okay with the loose ends, with the messiness. I know as a pastor, I'm not supposed to have doubts. And so I don't, but... As a, as a theologian... I like to think deeply about all of this stuff and I like to see how it like ties together in unique and interesting and complicated ways sometimes. And, and so I do think, from my perspective, that the story of Jesus ties together really nicely. That it makes sense of reality in a way that's hard to really describe. And I don't have all the answers in between that, right? I just do think the bow gets wrapped with Jesus really nicely. I don't know exactly how that puts all the puzzle pieces together, but most of the time I'm pretty convinced. And yet, there are times, if I'm being honest with you, that I wonder, sometimes I'm too cute for my own good. Intellectually, obviously. <laughs> like, what if, what if Christians over a couple thousand years just got over their skis? I mean, what if we've just come up with a whole lot of things and, and maybe we've just been convincing ourselves of something? 
And I have to fight that knee-jerk reaction and go, I guess I'm not a Christian. Go, no, it's okay. Breathe. It's okay to have a question. It's okay to sit in a place of unease. And then, you know what happens to me? Like Thomas, what usually brings me to say, my Lord, my God, is not some kind of explanation or sign or proof that I've confirmed with my senses. It's an experience. It's a revelation of the risen Christ. Blaise Pascal said, reason, there are reasons for things of which reason has no explanation. The heart knows things the mind can't necessarily explain. The Christian faith is a confession, not an explanation. And perhaps we'll always confess more than we can explain. And that's okay. Doesn't mean we can't explain and we shouldn't explain or seek to explain. But there's, there's still a confession. At the end of the day, when all is said or done, what, what does my faith rest on? Well, I'm compelled by the beauty of Christ. I'm drawn to it like a magnet. It's, it's not a formula. It's not a tight argument from proof text Bible verses. It's a hard to explain a handful of times in my life where I was somewhere and Christ revealed himself to me. I've never been able to pull away from that. If I'm guessing, I'm probably not going to ever be able to pull away from that. Despite what comes, despite the questions, despite the hard times and the difficulties, don't discount that. Don't discount that experience. Don't discount the heart knows things the mind can't describe. We might say, like, I mean, if you want to like win on Jeopardy, right? It's the epistemology of aesthetics. The, the, there might be knowledge and beauty. There might be the beauty of God, which grounds understanding of who we are and what the world is more than it is this kind of rational, formulaic thought process. Doubt doesn't have to be a disaster. And, and I think doubt as a home, properly, it's, it's the church. The church should be a, a home for the doubters, a home for the, the Thomases. And there's something... Oh, man, it's just self-serving. I know I'm a pastor, but we're, we're like, where's Thomas on this first meeting, right? And I'm like, well, I do know as a pastor that we can come up with really silly reasons not to be at church. But Thomas might have it's like a soccer practice, right? I don't know what was going on in Thomas's life. I'm not shaming anyone. There are lots of reasons that we can't make it to attendance or to worship and things of that nature. But But I do know for someone who has doubts and has questions, and by God's grace, particularly in the past year or so, we've, we've seen family members and people come to the church really wrestling or in a place of, of questioning. And, and what we've seen is when they stick it out, Jesus tends to slowly, gradually, eventually reveal himself. When they, when they keep showing up and digging in, not because there's something magical or special about the service or, or the building or the preaching or anything like that. 
No, it's just, it's just simply this is kind of how Jesus habitually works. It's his MO. His people gather and he is revealed. Thomas is a twin. We don't know much about this twin, but, but maybe in truth, we're all Thomas's twin. Some early Christians have thought about Thomas's nickname here as the twin and, and said maybe it's in part a reference to kind of the dual nature that so many human beings experience of themselves psychologically. Because sometimes we believe and then we don't believe, but it happens at the same time. It's the same person, right? Sometimes we say, I'll never believe, and sometimes we say, my Lord and my God. Sometimes, like the man who approaches Jesus, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And we might not know how to write that in an essay, but we know when we hear that phrase, we're like, yes, I can say that. I believe and help my unbelief. I took a step forward and I took a step back at the same time. I don't know how exactly that worked, but it did. And there's this weird tension in my life because things are messy and complicated. And yet, all the while, Jesus invites us to reach out in faith. We get a picture of John, the author of the fourth gospel here, of what he imagines his, his work will be. He says, I've written this so people will come to believe in Christ which is interesting. He, he seems to think his book will serve kind of a mediating role introducing people to the risen Christ. That whereas Thomas physically meets the resurrected Christ, future generations, which it seems like Jesus is talking about. He says, blessed are those who will not see and yet believe. I mean, he's, he's shouting us out here who, who aren't going to go through this same experience and yet will come to the same confession. When we read this story, when we think about Thomas, the Spirit might work and speak in our hearts, drawing us towards Jesus, pulling faith out of us, drawing us to a confession of my Lord and my God. And then in that faith, we might find the gospel, the promise, life. The life of the one who was dead but is now alive again because he is life himself. And out of an abundance of that existence, he offers life to his people. And and Christians from the very beginning of church history through more recent times, as they've read this passage, have said, when Jesus tells Thomas, reach out your finger, maybe he's not just talking to Thomas. Maybe there's a sacramental application in this passage that's true when Christians gather together. Cyril of Alexandria in the 4th century talks about this. John Calvin, 16th century, talks about this. So it's when Jesus' people gather, even still today, Jesus invites them to reach out their hand, to touch and to feel. Because there's bread and a cup. And Jesus institutes this practice for his followers. Come together. I want to commune with you. I want, I want to invite you to my table, my eternal table. I want to invite you into this relationship. I want to give you the life that is me. I want to give myself to you. How am I going to do that? Well, open up your hand. 
There's bread. But it's not just bread. It's a body broken and given for you. There's a cup. And it's not just a cup. It's, it's blood that's shed for you. And again, can I explain this to you well this morning? Probably not. And I'm not really interested in it. But I can confess it and say that but maybe the confession goes much farther than my explanation. But in some true way, Jesus at the table says, reach out. Taste, touch, see. Take hold of that which you wrestle with, that which you're unsure of, that which you long for. And in so doing, have your faith nurtured and built up. And in so doing, come to find the life that Jesus has come to give you and I. I'm wondering if you're messy this morning. I'm wondering if you have questions that you don't know the answers to. I'm wondering if there are loose ends in your faith, in your thought process. I'm wondering if there are things about the world that you can't make sense of, that frustrate you at a deep soul, heart level. Things about yourself that don't make sense to you, that frustrate you, create tension. And I'm wondering if this morning you might say, it's okay for now. It's not an obstacle. It's not a fence. Even with the mess and the tension and the questions and the loose ends, it's an invitation. And like Thomas, I'll reach out. I'll come and answer the invitation Christ gives to have communion. Communion with the God who created life and has come that we might receive it.